No, but you can imagine what it was like there in the winter. I I keep picturing that movie, The Shining, where Jack Nicholson has to live in that hotel slowly as the months go by and the darkness and the isolation and the snow. He goes insane. And I I think that would pretty much be me. Oh, yeah. But that would be you by October 15th. It would still be summer out. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be signaling babe with a, with a signal fire. Or, Come and get me. Yeah, the second day we're out there. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We are the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're talking about our visit to Dick Prenicke's cabin in the wilderness of Lake Clark National Park in Alaska. You may not have heard of Dick Prenicke before, but don't worry. In this episode, we'll tell you all about him and why we were so excited to visit his cabin he built by hand and lived in for 30 years. Hopefully, after you've listened, you'll be inspired to read his books or watch one of the many documentaries about this amazing naturalist, conservationist, writer, and wildlife photographer. Or maybe you'll even take a float plane to Twin Lakes and see the cabin for yourself. To kick things off, we discuss a gift I'm making for Karen which I might finish sometime next year. And at the end of the episode, we'll answer a question from a listener in our mailbag segment. Well, you'll be happy to know that your table is almost ready. You mean my birthday present? Well, when I said I was going to make you a table for your birthday, I didn't say which birthday. (laughs) That's true. You always ask for these things that are... Almost impossible to build. (laughs) But Matt, it's always the effort that counts, right? Anybody could go out and just write a check for a gift. Oh, so it's just the effort? (laughs) So I don't actually have to finish it (laughs) if I just put in a lot of effort? Well, then happy birthday. Because I know you've already put in a lot of effort. (laughs) I know you. I know it was a big ask. What we're talking about is... Years ago, probably, gosh, 17 years ago, we had this little cabin, the ski cabin, and Matt made a dining room table for our cabin out of these big, thick pieces of pine boards were the top, and then they had logs for the legs. Anyway, I absolutely love that table. We still have it. However, it was fairly small because our family only numbered five people at the time, and now our family has grown, and we need a bigger table. That was my first mistake. If I could do it all over again, go back to when I first met you 57 years ago, (laughs) I would act like I'm unable to do anything, (laughs) that I don't even know how to turn a screw. That was your first mistake. (laughs) So this to to all of you out there listening to young men who are just starting your relationship (laughs) with a significant other – don't let them know that you can do anything. <laughs> because then they'll ask right. and ask it's, and ask. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Incompetence is the way to go. Because <laughs> now I can't fake it. Once I made the first table, I can't say I don't know how to do that. That's right. So my birthday was last August, and I had asked Matt to make – and I asked like months and months ahead of time, to be fair. I didn't ask the week before. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> still doesn't make it any easier to I asked for a much bigger replica table, basically the same table only, only double twice twice I know, as big. Twice in size. When we were measuring it, it didn't seem that big just by looking at the measuring tape, but now <laughs> it's, it's huge. It's gigantic. It's so it's so heavy that just the top itself, I made the top before I made the legs. I can't move the top by myself. Do you think two of us could move it? Uh, maybe. <laughs> it's that heavy. So mm-hmm. I'm a little I'm a little concerned that it'll it will come crashing down. But no, I'm I've gotten past the critical points. That's now, good. Now I have to do a lot of detail work like sanding it and filling the holes and all the fun stuff. All that stuff. So anyway, yeah, it's just, that's what I'm spending all my time doing. 
but it's the it's the it's the <laughs> it's not like I live in a cabin in the wilderness and have nothing to do for months on end. I have a life. I'm a busy man. I know you are. I know you are. But this is like an heirloom piece that we will have for the rest of our lives, and then our kids will have, and our kids' kids will have. As long as I don't ever have to move it again. Once once I set it where it's going, I'm never I'm never moving that thing again. I hope it doesn't uh, break our back porch. No, it'll it'll be fine. <laughs> so, do you think it will be ready by Thanksgiving? No. <laughs> <laughs> what about Christmas? Can I hope for a Christmas miracle? Yes, it'll it'll be ready by a Christmas. <laughs> because I'm thinking it would be fun to have like Christmas dinner out there. Out Just, in the backyard? Yeah, have We're everybody. Have Christmas out in the backyard? <laughs> On the new table. <laughs> when it's 30 degrees? It would be beautiful. Maybe it will be snowing. We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have everybody bundle up. How about if I put the table where you can see it from inside the house? <laughs> put a candle on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. I just I would just like to see it. This topic that we're talking about today, it could be our favorite experience of all our national park trip experiences. It could be. And I know we say that a lot, but I think you're right. I think the thing about this trip is that it's so unusual and so unique and such an unforgettable experience. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about one of our adventures in Alaska. So Alaska is an incredible place for public lands. It has eight national parks. And, you know, I didn't even know that. Before we started our parks journey, I had no idea. I could have named Denali National Park, and I would have thought there was just one. I I would clearly have failed any trivia questions about Alaska National Parks. And some of them are remote. Yes, half only, of them, right? right you can only, only can drive to four of them. Mm-hmm. But even the greater Alaska, 90% of Alaska's public lands. I didn't know that either. That's crazy. Right. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's another word we have to stop saying. It's... Mm, it's stunning. <laughs> It's stunning that. <laughs> All right. All right. We're so getting out the yeah, thesaurus. Yeah, like... <laughs> so today specifically, we're going to talk about our trip to Lake Clark National Park, which is about 100 miles southwest of Anchorage. And this is one of those parks that there are no roads leading into. So if you want to go to Lake Clark National Park, you have to be flown into the park on a small plane. Lake Clark was made a national park along with some others back in 1980 when they passed the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. But it was one of the very last things that Jimmy Carter did when he was leaving office. Uh, This was one of the things that was on the agenda that didn't get done. And then he he lost the election. And so on his way out, this was one of the acts that he he got through right there at the end of his administration. Yeah, thank goodness. And Lake Clark is about 4 million acres of wilderness. Now, it's also the name is officially Lake Clark National Park and Preserve. Lake Clark is probably the one of the least developed parks of any kind. There's no roads in there. And I'm a little surprised that 17,000 people visit the park every year. It seems like a lot, doesn't it? It does seem like a lot. So when we visited, it was back in July of 2011. And we had, we'd mentioned before, we split our travel to all the eight Alaska parks. We split it up into three different summers just because that was easier for us to manage. And coming from Seattle, it's an easy flight to Anchorage. So that's how we did it. We split it up into three different trips. So in July of 2011, we flew into Anchorage and we went back to Denali for a second visit. And then we went to Katmai National Park, which we talked about in episode eight of this podcast. And after Katmai, then we visited Lake Clark. And that's, I think that's a good way to do it. If you're going to go to Lake Clark, you might as well go to Katmai also. Oh, yeah. They're very close. In fact, some outfitters will fly you to both places on different days. So you can book one outfitter, go to Katmai one day, and go to Lake Clark on another. Now, you can go to Lake Clark to do a few things. A lot of people go to wilderness camp and to, to fish on Lake Clark and other some of the more remote lakes in the park. The reason we went 
that we were so excited about and why we're so excited about this episode is to visit Dick Prennicky's cabin. Mm-hmm. Now, Dick's cabin sits on the shore of Twin Lakes, and it's been maintained by the Park Service for the last 20 years, ever since Dick left his cabin. Yeah, and this is why if we ever refer to Lake Clark as Dick Clark National Park, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure we, we have will. in the past. <laughs> and we will. Uh, that, that's why, because it's where Dick Prennicky's cabin was. And so Lake Clark... The, the lake itself that the park's named after is where Port Allsworth is. It's right on the shore of Lake Clark. But Twin Lakes is about 40 miles into the wilderness from Lake Clark. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to talk about today, about what Dick did, his cabin, and all kinds of things. But just really briefly, we should just give a quick history of who Dick was. So he was born in Iowa. But he was in the Navy until about 1945, and following his discharge from the Navy, he went to school to become a diesel mechanic. And for several years after that, he worked as a heavy equipment operator and a repairman on the Naval Air Station at Kodiak. And then what? He traveled around Alaska for years after that, didn't he? Yeah. And I read a little bit more about his life, and you wonder, well, he was in the Navy until 45. Why wasn't he in World War II? And it's not completely clear, but he had some health issues. I know he had rheumatic fever mm-hmm. that, that laid him up for like six months. And when he got over that, it caused him to really focus on his health. And, he, and from that point forward in his life, he really tried to stay in shape and always push himself physically. And this really motivated him to do hard things, be out in the wilderness, challenge his body. And so that's part of what makes up his personality. That's right. Dick first visited Upper Twin Lake in 1962 when his friends Spike and Hope invited him to their cabin. They had a summer cabin on the lake there. And he vacationed with them for a couple of summers until 1967 when he started building his own cabin 200 yards away. And what's amazing about this that we have to say is he was 51 years old at the time. And that was a, I think that was a little bit older We were in our 40s when we had first learned about his story and I think saw the documentary. And so it was pretty relevant to our age at the time to think that this person would go into the wilderness at 51 and begin this life. Right. And so it was very very inspirational. It was. It gave us hope that, you know (laughs) – Gave us hope that, <laughs> that we might build something. a cabin in the wilderness one <laughs> yeah. day and live there for 30 years. Yeah, but we but didn't. we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> so, yes, Dick built his cabin during the summers of 67 and 68, and he used local materials and really simple hand tools, some of which he built those tools himself. Uh, now, at the time, he didn't buy the land, right? He- no, there was another gentleman that he knew that had leased this area from the Bureau of Land Management. And he was going to build a cabin, and he couldn't do it because he got terminal cancer and passed away. And before he died, he, he encouraged Dick to go up there and do it. So he went up there one summer and cut all the big logs for the cabin. And he stacked them all up close to where he was planning to build a cabin and left them there over the winter. And he, he didn't stay that first winter. He, he let the logs season. And then it was the next summer that he went back and built a cabin. And we'll be talking more about this cabin further on in this episode. But he lived in this cabin by himself for 30 years, from 1969 to 1999. And he lived there without electricity, without running water, a telephone, or any other modern conveniences. And we should say he didn't live there continuously. He would sometimes live there for 12 months, 19 months. He would go back from time to time to the lower 48 and visit family and, and come back there. And there were long stretches, but he wasn't in the cabin there for 30 years continuous. Right, right. And people did come to visit him as well. So he wasn't wasn't completely alone for 30 years. We should definitely mention that. So one of the things Dick did, and this is actually what made uh, Dick famous, was he wrote in a journal every single day, and he also filmed himself and his surroundings. This was pretty unusual back then. I mean, it's so common right now for people to do selfies or take videos of, of themselves. He would set up the 
camera and film himself building the cabin. And he also had some, he had a still camera. He would take stills. And that became the content for this documentary that uh, that they made years ago. So he he had the presence. He, he knew that he was doing something special. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was doing it for himself. He was not trying to do this to, to become famous. But he was aware of how unique it was for somebody to do this. And, uh, you know, maybe other people would be interested in seeing his progress. And boy, were they interested. <laughs> so excerpts from his early journals were made into a book in 1973. And that book is titled One Man's Wilderness. And in 2003, this was then made into a PBS documentary called Alone in the Wilderness, which um, you can buy both the book and the DVD on Amazon. It's on our gift guide that we talked about last week. I remember watching that documentary over and over on PBS and thinking at the time we watched it that it was odd how interested we were in it and that no one else could possibly be interested in in this something like this. But then over the years, we would mention it to people and almost every time. People would know what we were talking about. Oh, I know. So that was a very popular documentary. Mm -hmm. We were obsessed back in 2003 and four and five watching it. PBS showed it fairly frequently as part of their fundraising for the PBS stations. And I remember we would just watch it over and over again. And especially the part where Dick is building his cabin was fascinating. And also then he would show clips from his everyday life about fishing and and uh, just the repairs he did around the cabin. Just he He filmed everything. And it was... I don't know. It was so different from our our everyday lives now and and back then at the time that it was just fascinating to watch. And then we bought the diaries. There's actually two diaries. The the first one that he came out with was really the, the bestseller and then there's there's another one that the National Park Service has, has put out which is more journal entries, but it's that first diary that is about the days where he built the cabin and what one of the things I I reread it recently. And one of the things that struck me as I read through it is it's full of these very small details of everyday life, like how long he would soak his beans and what he had for breakfast and how he caught a fish that morning and just the some of the details about how he was building his cabin. A lot of small details, but they add up to this amazing story about this big adventure. Right. And that was inspirational for us when we started writing because oftentimes when you try to write about something big, it seems impossible to describe. He had this incredible landscape that he was living in and he was doing this this amazing thing of, you know, building a cabin in the wilderness all by himself. And if he tried to describe it as a big thing, mm-hmm. you just couldn't. But he gave all of the small details, and that added up to this mosaic of the story. And, and that was one of the things I think we learned as we started writing is don't try to write big, write small. Take one small detail and go deeper with the small details. And then if you do that often enough, you'll have the big picture. So it was inspirational reading that diary. It was. And I remember back when we were watching the documentary and reading the book, that period of our lives in 2003 and four, you had said to me, wouldn't it be cool one day to go and see Dick's cabin? And to me, that was so far out of the realm of possibility for us. You might as well have said, let's go to the North Pole because we hadn't planned to go to all the parks. We'd never been to Alaska, certainly. And it just seemed so far out of reach and such an extreme thing that when we actually got there, I think that's what made it so incredibly special. And that's another thing we learned about going to all the national parks is so many of these things that we thought were out of our reach, meaning we thought it would be some heroic effort to get to these places. In fact, a lot of them, it's just doing the research. There are services that will get you literally to the doorstep of some of these amazing places in our public lands. And it's just a matter of doing the research. And here, 
there was a plane service that would take <laughs> us right to Dick's cabin, and then it became doable. That's right. And we're going to talk about our trip, but I just want to say one more thing. Dick moved into his cabin in the late 60s, uh, but then when Lake Clark became a national park in 1980, the Park Service allowed Dick to continue living in his cabin, and he lived there until 1999 when, uh, due to his age and his declining health, he went to live with his brother in California. And upon his death in 2003, he donated the cabin, all of its furnishings, and all of his journals to the National Park Service. And he was 86 years old when he died. I think going to Lake Clark National Park, that particular visit, was probably our first time in a small plane. It was. We took a float plane to to get to Katmai, and that was probably, what, a 10-seater, a 12-seater? Well, when we went to Katmai, we first flew to King Salmon, and that was a prop plane. Mm-hmm. It, pro- it probably fit 20 or 30 people. It was a fairly large plane. And then we took a small float plane from King Salmon over to Naknuk Lake. So we'd had that short flight on that little plane, but this was the first time we took... A very little plane. <laughs> as a small plane on a, what, 170-mile journey through, yes. through the mountains. Yes. So the pilot picked us up in Anchorage, and it was a little four-seater. And so it was Matt and I and the pilot. I sat in the back where I could crouch down and close my eyes. And I remember, Matt, you sat up in the front seat where you could see everything. <laughs> and the pilot was – and we may have said this in another episode, but the pilot – just barely cleared the mountain range that's that's right west of Anchorage. I thought he was going to clip the mountains, but he didn't. And then right as we come over that first ridge, the scenery was spectacular. Oh, my gosh, uh, yes. That, then, Those glaciers in Lake Clark Pass. Right. Uh, yeah. So I did at that point, I did start looking out the window because it was just too incredible to keep my eyes closed. The plane took us to the tiny little community of Port Allsworth, which is the only little community inside the park. I read that it has 125 residents. That seems to be <laughs> that seems like an overestimate to me. Well, there's but. quite a few houses there. I think these are summer residents for folks. But the mm-hmm. only way you can get there is by plane. That's right. So besides the little airstrip, Port Ellsworth has, it does have a National Park Visitor Center for Lake Clark, so we could get the stamp. And it has the park's field headquarters there. And it also has a church, and it has the place where we stayed, um, which was called the Farm Lodge. I think it might have another lodge or two. The lodge that we stayed at is run by the Ellsworth family. And Babe Ellsworth settled there with his wife in 1950. Mm -hmm. And then they, at some point in time, built this lodge. And he also essentially was a bush pilot. And I think that's how he made his living, just taking people around in the area in planes and, and of course, uh, moving cargo, delivering supplies and, and things like that. And he was one of the people that Dick first befriended when he had this idea of, of going to Lake Clark and building this cabin. And uh, Babe essentially ferried him back and forth from Port Allsworth to Twin Lakes and brought him supplies from time to time. Mm-hmm. Interesting that his nickname was Babe. I think his real name was Leon, but uh, that's kind of an interesting nickname for a man. Hey, Babe. <laughs> just side note, I just thought. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So let's talk about the farm lodge where we stayed. We had a cabin there. Now, we booked a package with the farm lodge. So the package included having them pick us up in Anchorage, taking us to Port Ellsworth, and then at the end of the trip, taking us back to Anchorage. And then it included a one-day flight scene trip to Dick's cabin on Twin Lakes. So this is something that they do regularly. This is a, mm-hmm. this is a popular trip for people who visit Port Allsworth. That's right. So when we first got there in Port Allsworth, we had about a half a day uh, left after our flight. So we took a we took a hike to a really pretty waterfall, wandered around. There's not a whole lot to do there in the little community, and our flight scene trip to Dick's cabin was the following day. And I remember having dinner that first night. There were some other guests at the cabin, and this young man, he was probably, I don't know, 22, 23, Mm -hmm. uh, sits at our table with us. And there were uh, several tables that sat four, and he sought us out and sat with us, and his name was Robert. 
And I thought it was odd that he he sought us out and had dinner with us. Very, very nice. Well, we we learned halfway through dinner that he would be our guide the next day. Right. I think he was checking us out and yeah. getting to know us <laughs> yeah. and seeing right. how big of a pain in the I ass know. we were going to be. And I think it was interesting <laughs> that he didn't tell us he was our guide for the next day until he got to know us a little bit That's better. Right. <laughs> there was probably something in his employment contract that allowed him to opt out so if the that, people that, yeah, are that, jerks. That, that may be their process. Is they're, they're not going to say anything if, uh-huh. if they don't want – maybe seniority allows them to switch guests. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who are these people? But he was our guide the next day. And, when, mm-hmm. and what was interesting – and he was a young man. He was from Wyoming. and He was an aspiring pilot. So the next day, of course, when we woke up, it's a little bit – Misty and cloudy, as it seems to be every single day in the summer in Alaska. But we took off anyway. The flight was a little bumpy. I kept looking out the window, looking at the glaciers, thinking about what might possibly be a soft place for the plane to crash land if it had to. (laughs) Um, But it was a beautiful flight. We flew over a lot of turquoise lakes. It was really pretty. When we flew down for a landing in, you could just see Dick's cabin peeking through the trees. And gosh, it was one of those kind of pinch me moments like we are actually here. We're actually here. Now, I thought when we would get there, it would just be us and Dick's cabin in the wilderness and no one else was around. And I was a little surprised because on the shore, as we're taxiing to the beach, there was a park ranger. Munro. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, for everyone listening, (laughs) um, his name is Munro, but Matt likes to say it with the emphasis on the first syllable. (laughs) Munro? If you're wondering. How do you know he doesn't say (laughs) Munro? Because I think he introduced himself as, hi, my name is Munro. And Robert was calling him Monroe. But you have a tendency to do that, like the police and the- Detroit. Detroit, yeah. Well, Monroe was – actually, his story is about as interesting as Dick's, but we don't have enough time to, to tell that. But he was a volunteer ranger, and he and his wife Kay live in the summer in a cabin nearby Dick's, and they're the caretakers of Dick's cabin. That's right. And coincidentally, they live in Spike and Hope's cabin that we had mentioned earlier where Dick first went to Twin Lakes. And they – Uh, You know, their job throughout the summer is to show visitors around and to kind of keep Dick's cabin in good repair, see how it made it through the winter, and then fix anything that needs to be fixed. Munro showed us around, and I thought it was odd that we got this personal one-on-one tour. And I asked them, I said, well, what— what do you what do you do when there's more visitors? And he just looked at me. He's like, we don't get many visitors here. <laughs> and I guess just coincidentally, there was another couple. We didn't see him much that had visited that cabin that day. And I think when the rare occurrence, when there's two sets of visitors, Kay takes the other group mm-hmm. and does the does the tour of the area. That's right. So it was funny because we got out of the plane and we're standing there all introducing each other and and chit-chatting briefly. And Robert, our guide, is talking to the pilot of the other plane that's parked there. And what did he say? Like the other guy said, "Do you did you bring it or do you have it?" Well, the, right. So the pilot is a young guy, also about Robert's age. He comes over, so Robert introduces us to him, and then the guy like leans over to Robert and says, "Do you have it?" And Robert was just kind of embarrassingly nodded his head. Yes, I have it. And the the, the other guy says, "Can I see it?" <laughs> Which uh, which is also odd, right? Yes. And so Robert reaches into his pocket. And this is like a little rain jacket windbreaker. And he pulls out of his pocket the biggest handgun I have ever seen. It was like (laughs) Dirty Harry. It was this huge forty-five Magnum. And the, the other guide was holding it and looking at it. And so it was at that moment we realized that Robert wasn't so much our guide as he was our bodyguard. That's right. That's we right. were in bear country. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was he was there to really to protect us from anything that was out there that might want to harm us. That's right. And apparently they do not use bear spray because Monroe also had a gun in a, in a holster that we saw. So they have switched to a little more um, drastic tactic, should I say, to protect themselves from the bears there. 
yeah, if they live there, they're probably more comfortable having a large handgun with them mm-hmm. to, to protect them against bears. And this is a real thing. This this is not a, a show of machismo or anything like that. There are animals there that could harm you, and they need to be ready for that. That's right. It was slightly reassuring. I certainly wouldn't want a bear to be shot because we were visiting. But I have to say, out there in the wilderness of Alaska, I was I was kind of glad to have Robert by our side. So we finally got our first look at the cabin. It looked exactly like I thought it would. And it was so well kept. It's not a huge cabin. It's about 12 by 16 mm-hmm. on the, uh, the outside dimensions. And it's uh, made of, of logs, peeled peeled logs. Like I said, he cut them locally close by the side of the cabin, spruce logs. And it shows in his videos, um, his movies. Do you call those videos if they're old from the 1968? No. What do you call it's them? film. That, Film, thank you. Actually, physical film. Eight millimeter film. You see him building the cabin and he notches out these logs so that they nestle into each other. It's almost like those Lincoln log building sets that you had as a kid where you you lay one down and then you put the other one crosswise and the little notches fit into each other. That's how he built the cabin. Right. And of course, he's fitting each one of those logs custom to the one it's, it's connected to and Really amazing it when you read the diary about how he built this. That's right. Uh, you also see in his film that he has a gable roof that's made up of spruce poles, which he then covered with sod and then covered with moss. He also, what do you call it, chink, when you stick the moss in the sides of the logs in the in the he little d- gaps? Did, yeah, he did chink the cabin. And, and also, I, I should mention, before he put the moss on, he did put a layer of tar paper overlapping tar paper, and four layers of polyurethane plastic. So he put that down, and then the moss went on top. So the cabin had three windows, and on the south wall, he had built a very rustic-looking stone fireplace from stones that he found on the beach. And reading his diary, he talks about, you know, it's time to build the door. And he could have made hinges out of spare metal that he had from old gas cans. But he said, you know, I, th- I think I'm just going to make my own out of wood. And not only that, he decides, and I'm going to make it a Dutch door. Which so, is very cool. So it, he was truly a craftsman. I mean, this, this is a, a work of art, this little cabin that he built. So as we're standing there looking at the store that Dick built, we could see Dick had told the story of a bear encounter And we could see these bear claw marks on the uh, piece of wood that was at the top of the door. So what Dick said had happened was that he was in his cabin one evening and he heard a bear trying to climb up on the roof. And so he shot his gun I guess, up through the roof. That was a little unclear. Right, to, to try to scare the bear away. Mm-hmm. It scared the bear away from climbing on the roof, but the next thing he heard was the bear throwing himself against this door. And as I said, we could see the claw marks that the bear had left, which was was pretty amazing. And the way Dick tells it, he shoots, the, he shoots his gun off, thinking that it's going to scare the bear away. And then he runs to the door to shut it and latch it. And just as he gets it latched, the bear throws himself against the door. So this bear was not afraid. Mm-hmm. And yeah, those bear claw marks were still there. When, I know. When we I visited. know. It was very. It really brought the whole story home. I guess the story had a happy ending. The bear eventually wandered away. Dick did not want to have to shoot the bear, and he didn't. So right, he actually the bear went away and then started coming back. And Dick shot a warning shot right in front of the bear, kicked up some gravel, and that was enough. Which, and I think it's amazing that if this happened right in the first couple months he was living there and and there was no other stories about bears bothering him for the rest of the years he was there. That's right. Yeah. In his diary, you can uh, see the progression of the cabin day after day. And he wasn't he wasn't working on the cabin 16 hours a day. He would get up. He was planting a garden. He would go fish. He would work on the cabin. But even doing all of that, it took him only about two months. Which to, is pretty amazing. To build the cabin, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, which included things like building the furniture for the inside and this elaborate door and putting the roof on and, and all that all that he had to do to make it livable. 
So let's talk about the inside and the furniture. I was surprised when we went inside that everything was left as if Dick had just stepped out for a few minutes. His furniture was there. Some of his clothes were there. His books were there, dishes, pots and pans. It looked like he had just left for a few minutes and he'd be right back. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting things he would do, of course, living in the wilderness, he hiked a lot in the mountains around and sometimes even for he would be out for a couple of days and he would always leave a map on his desk and he would put a pin in the map where he was going. And this way, if he got hurt out there or there was some problem and Babe or some other pilot would come in and and come into his cabin, they could see where he was. And when we were in the cabin, they had had that map out and they had a pin in it. And it just, again, it made you feel like, oh, well, Dick's over there. <laughs> That's why he's not here. But That's he'll, right. he'll be back in a little while. He'll be right back and he'll make us some tea. The tea kettle was sitting on his little wood-burning kitchen stove there. So we read in his diaries that his diet was mostly oatmeal, sourdough pancakes, and biscuits, Uh, bacon, eggs, beans, and pretty much anything else that his friends brought him and that Babe brought him, and along with the fish that he caught in Twin Lakes. And I think the first year or so, he did hunt. He did kill one sheep for food, but he, he pretty quickly got to the point where he didn't hunt for food. He would get, like you said, Babe would bring him bacon and eggs and things like that, and so he, he really had what he needed from uh, Port Allsworth coming in for you know every week or every two weeks. So he didn't hunt. There were times when other hunters would kill animals and they wouldn't take all the meat. So if, if that were the case, he would maybe take a quarter of one of the animals. And so he'd have maybe sheep stew. But he also said in, in his diary that his diet didn't change that much. And he thought that that was a good thing. He, he observed that you know, these wild animals eat the same thing every day and they're they're so healthy and, and maybe that's what we should be doing. We should be eating the same thing. You, you don't want, as he said, you don't want to confuse your digestive system with <laughs> eating different things every day. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And when you see the video of Dick, uh, sorry, the film of Dick and the photos, he was very trim. It looks like he does not have an ounce of body fat. So despite eating sourdough pancakes and biscuits and bacon and all that stuff, I think Uh, Obviously, he was living a healthy lifestyle, and maybe it was the fact that he was always on the go. He was either hiking or fishing or fixing something or chopping wood, and I think that lifestyle is probably uh, something we should all aspire to. Right, Matt? (laughs) Yeah, yes. Yes, that's what we should do. We should... We should build a cabin in the backyard and live there. Mm-hmm. And uh, but if you if you want to replicate Dick's journey, we cannot have the beer fridge. No, no, we can't do that. There's probably some other things we can't do. Um, <laughs> can't have pumpkin pie for breakfast every day for for the month of November, like we do. That's now. right. I don't think I'm hardy enough for that. No. He was really good about using everything. He mm-hmm. never threw stuff out. In particular, these pilots would – they would carry the fuel for the planes in gas cans. And then when they were done with it, they kind of just toss them in the wilderness. And he would collect these things and use the metal. He'd, he'd make pots and pans out of, out of the metal and other things. He reused everything, made a snow shovel. And, yeah, it it was interesting. We saw these things in the cabin. And one of the great stories is Monroe was not only a volunteer ranger, but he's he's a historian. And he restored a lot of these things that Dick had made, but used exactly the same materials and techniques that Dick did. Right. He, He refused to use anything that Dick did not have access to. What was interesting is when we got off the plane there are there were gravel walkways to different places but i wasn't expecting when we went in the cabin that the floor was made of gravel right there was no wooden floor it was just gravel and what dick did is before he built the cabin he cleared an area about 20 feet by 20 feet and he hauled gravel from the the shore of the lake and essentially made 
like a foundation bed of nice, fine gravel. And then he, he begins building the cabin. And when he gets it almost done, he realizes that now the inside of the cabin is just filled with uh, wood shavings. And he's trying to think, like, how am I going to get all these wood shavings out of this? So, of course, what he decides, he's going, he shoveled all the gravel out of the cabin and took it down to the beach and essentially tossed it into the lake. All the wood shavings floated away. And then he scooped all the gravel back up <laughs> and, and refilled. And I believe that Munro told us that he would do that every spring also. That was his spring cleaning. He would take everything out of his cabin, shovel all the gravel out, wash it in the lake, and fill the cabin back up with gravel. And he clearly was kind of a neat freak, <laughs> if you will, for... Gosh, who else is like that? Yeah. This is... <laughs> I think that's one of the things that you loved about him and that story. I could so see you shoveling out the gravel and washing it and then – but you would probably dry it before you brought it back in. Well, yeah. You, you dry it. You put it, you put it on the shore of the beach. You let, let the sun get it and, uh, and you dry it out. So let's talk about the winter because to me that is one of the biggest accomplishments would be living in that little cabin through the extreme Alaska winters. And winter came quick there. Many of the daily entries in his diary, he'll say what the temperature was. Mm-hmm. And it got down – I mean in, the, in November, it would get well below zero. And I think it got – oh, midwinter – I think it got 48 degrees below. I don't, I don't know that it ever got negative 50, but you know, many days it never got above zero. And, of course, he's living in this little tiny cabin. So if anything goes wrong with the stove or the fireplace, uh, you know, you'd, you'd be cold pretty quick. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. Nowadays we have, we have clothing that is made for cold weather and electric blankets and sleeping bags. He didn't have access to any of that. And he would hike most days. In the winter, of course, you're not going to get wet in the middle of the winter when it's that cold. If any, any precipitation that's coming down is snow, and he would hike in negative forty degrees, uh, long, long distances. So he he still kept very busy, and Babe kept coming every week or two to bring him supplies. One of the things I thought was interesting that Dick did was he would he would go out onto the lake, and he would snowshoe a landing strip for the pilots. Mainly it was Babe, and he would put uh, spruce boughs at the edge of them. Now, the plane had skis on it when it would come in in the winter, so it, it could land in the snow. But what was difficult for the pilots is, with everything being so white, they had no depth perception. So they couldn't really tell right as they were landing if they were a foot off the ground or maybe 10 feet. And, of course, that's pretty important. <laughs> yeah. And so by roughing up the snow, it gave them this sense of depth perception. And I know Babe really appreciated that Dick would take the time to do something like that. Uh, Wow, that's incredible. And then just digging himself out from his cabin, because just imagine the snow that would pile up outside his front door and on his roof. He would be buried. Yeah, and he he kept that shoveled. He wrote in his diary that he lived his life like the grizzly bears do. And in the summer, he was out exploring every place and eating as much as he could and stocking up for the winter. And then when winter came, he was like the bear hibernating. And he would go to bed by 8 o'clock and he would sleep until 8 o'clock. And of course, if you think about it, you know, Alaska is so dark in the winter. And I read that the sun... There were months where the sun never was high enough to shine on his cabin. So can you imagine what that must have been like? He must have really done a good job of of taking care of his mental health because you could get cabin fever really quick and especially without a lot of sunlight, but it seemed like he stayed he stayed pretty active during the days and some of his wildlife encounters probably were the most interesting in the wintertime. He talks about seeing a wolverine, and wolverines, are they're very shy. They don't like to be seen. And so he had seen these wolverine tracks for a long, long time, never saw the animal itself. And one night he decides he put a, a piece of caribou meat on a sled, and he put it out on the lake, and then he ran a cord from the sled all the way to the cabin through the window 
And when he was lying in bed in the middle of the night, he would wrap it around his wrist. So if the wolverine tried to get the meat and pull it away, it would it would wake him up. And sure enough, I think maybe even the first night, the, the wolverine showed up and he even shined a flashlight on the wolverine. And the wolverine didn't even bother the wolverine. Actually, the wolverine turned its back on Dick and just kept eating. So he had these interesting encounters with wildlife. He, he had a squirrel, a spruce squirrel that lived close by the cabin that he, he was always watching where the squirrel was. And then, unfortunately, he realized one time that after a couple of days, the squirrel was gone. And uh, in the little hole where the squirrel was living, there was now an ermine. Uh, oh. Yeah, so a, a weasel, a small weasel. He said it was about 10 inches long. And he said, well, the ermine must have eaten the squirrel and taken his home. And Good so, for the ermine. Uh, the, <laughs> no, but you can imagine what it was like there in the winter. I, I keep picturing that movie, The Shining, where Jack Nicholson has to live in that hotel in the dead of winter and the snow piles up. He's the caretaker all by himself with just his wife and his boy. And slowly as the months go by and the darkness and the isolation and the snow, he goes insane. And I, I think that would pretty much be me. Oh, yeah. But the, uh, that would be you by October 15th. It would still be summer out. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be signaling babe with a with a signal fire. Or, Come and get me. Yeah, the second day we're out there. <laughs> yeah, there's no cell service out there. No, there's nothing out of course, there. Back in 1968, mm-hmm. there was no cell service anywhere. But right, yeah. so he wasn't missing that. But he was fascinated by the wildlife. He spent a lot of time filming them, observing them. He would hike miles and miles and miles just to. To see some. And, and, and there was a ton of wildlife up there. He never talked, even even the bear that tried to get into his cabin, he never talked about the animals, especially the wolves and the grizzly bears, as if he were afraid of them. He was just curious. I did see on one of the documentaries, though, because there are a few of them out there now, it showed his tripod and he was filming a mother grizzly and her two little cubs. And it looked like he was fairly close to her. And he said on the documentary, I can do this if the wind is blowing. But if the wind is not blowing and that mother grizzly can smell me, he said, I don't go anywhere even remotely close to her. Yeah, so he was cautious. Mm-hmm. He was definitely cautious. Some of the other animals that he filmed were moose and sheep and caribou You mentioned the wolverines, lynx, and red foxes. Lots of wildlife out there. Yeah. It was fun to to be able to walk in the cabin, see all the things that Mm -hmm. uh, he had built. We actually also got to go over to Spike's cabin and see that. But we had enough time. It was raining a little bit, but we knew this was kind of a a Mm once-in-a-lifetime event, so it didn't matter. We did a little bit of hiking up above the cabin, too, up kind of in the wilderness area because – There's so many references to him hiking. We kind of wanted to get a sense of what it was like up there. Robert took us up on one of Dick's trails. So we walked up to the top of a small mountain behind his cabin, and the views were incredible. So you could kind of get the lay of the land from up there. Yeah, that's when we were really happy that we knew Robert had a big gun (laughs) with him. Definitely. We didn't didn't hike. uh, We didn't stray too far from Robert. Uh, I was practically holding his hand. (laughs) After after that, we we hiked a little bit, and then we had – Robert had packed us a lunch, and we had uh, lunch on the beach. And we even then – like I said, we went over to Spike's cabin. Uh And And that was about the same size, wasn't it, as Dick's cabin? It was pretty similar. It was similar, and Kay was there, and we sat, and just we had an opportunity to just sit and talk and ask Munro and Kay about the area and more of the history, and Mm -hmm. that that was fascinating. We could have stayed there all day. They were so gracious and lovely people, and gosh, good for them for giving up their summers to live out there. It was such a pleasure to meet them. I remember Kay told us that she was thrilled when it would be a sunny day because she could hang up her solar shower out in the sun. Now, you have to remember, Alaska in the summer, there are not very many sunny days, as we found out. Right. So they would actually then bring the shower inside. She would hang it from the center uh, beam of the cabin, and they would just shower inside their cabin. So their cabin also had a gravel floor. So they put this mat down. 
that would drain. So they have a nice clean place to stand and they would just shower right there in the middle and then the water would just drain through the gravel. And it was pretty good living in the summer. Right, it was. And after we hung out with them for an hour or two, we went back to Dick's cabin to take another look around. Now, not too far from Dick's cabin, uh, he built a log cache. The second summer Dick was there, he built a meat safe. So a meat cache, if you will. And of course, he built this high up off the ground so that animals couldn't get to it, both in the, you know, in the summer and the winter. He had to build it high so just in case the snow piled up, it would still be far enough off the ground that animals couldn't get to it. And so imagine four poles, like telephone poles coming together, uh, and at the top of it is a little little tiny cabin. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was six feet by four feet. I right. looked it up. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. uh, he also then put coffee cans around the support poles the last couple feet. So if squirrel managed to get that far up there, they'd hit the metal and they wouldn't be able to climb the, the rest of the way. He had hand built a ladder to access this meat safe and it was about nine feet tall. So I had the chance to climb up the ladder and open the meat safe and look in. Was there meat in there it? There was no meat in there. <laughs> That's what you, you you expected to see, like a honk of caribou up there, didn't you? Yes. Or in modern days, it would actually be a really good beer fridge because think how cold it gets at night. It would keep your beer nice and chilled. Well, he had as a refrigerator refrigerator, because there's permafrost, he had dug a hole close by the cabin and had dug it deep enough that it was still permafrost. And he covered that with moss. And so he would put some of the things in there that he needed to keep hold. And I I don't know how he kept animals off of that. Maybe he put some logs over it so they couldn't get to it. He was so ingenious, wasn't he? Yeah. I guess you'd have to be to be out there for 30 years and not die. (laughs) Well, he was when you you think of somebody in the middle of the 20th century. But Mm -hmm. he was just doing things that humans had learned to do for thousands and thousands of years just to survive in the wilderness. That's right. So the last thing we did before we took off was we took what we call our dick in the door photos. Right. If you get a copy of his first diary – or you see it online, anywhere, Amazon, whatever. There's an iconic photo of Dick. It's a self-portrait of him standing in the door of his cabin. And like I said, it was a Dutch door. So the top is open and he's leaning on the bottom part of the door. And it's just a great photo of him and his cabin. And I always called it the Dick in the Door photo. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to get that photo. We took a few, had Monroe take our photo. Mm-hmm. The lighting wasn't all that great. And actually, I have a good one of Monroe in the door. That's right. We took his photo, yeah, too. Yeah. And by the way, we will post all of these on DearBobAndSue.com if you would like to see photos of Dick's cabin on the outside, on the inside, and all around it. And then he became pretty famous. He wasn't trying to be. His diary was published uh, he was sending these films back to his brother in California. The, the documentary wasn't out yet, but that first book of his diary, One Man's Wilderness, got him a lot of notoriety. It did. So he lived in in pretty much obscurity until 1973 when One Man's Wilderness was published. And then he started to become known. And in 1977, the National Park Service produced a video called One Man's Alaska. And you can actually watch that online now. Um, We'll put a link to that on our show notes where you can find One Man's Alaska. That's really interesting to see. And it was based on Dick's cabin construction footage and some of the wildlife footage that he shot for the National Park Service. And then, you know, after that, he started becoming more and more famous, and ABC News ran an interview with him on the Harry Reasoner barbara Walters program in 1977. He was on a Nova PBS program in 1978. And so all of a sudden, he started becoming known as this wilderness expert. It brought him into the public limelight, and he kind of represented the wilderness of Alaska. And it seems like he didn't really change much. I don't think that notoriety changed him. He still lived there, Spartan lifestyle in that cabin Mm -hmm. until, gosh, until he was in his 80s, which is pretty amazing. It is amazing. Like 51 seemed like a real accomplishment, but he was there into his 80s. 
That's right. Now, when Lake Clark became a national park and more and more people heard about Lake Clark and heard about Dick Prennicky, more people started coming to visit him. Instead of just seeing hunters out there, he would see um, campers and river rafters and people wanted to come and visit Dick. But he came out as a strong advocate for the preservation of Twin Lakes. And by 1980, when they made it a national park, he was almost, he'd almost gotten to hero status um, for the preservationists and the public as the advocate for protecting our wild lands. By the time he was kind of towards the end of his stay at Twin Lakes, he became a volunteer in the park helping the Park Service personnel, that he would monitor weather, collect botanical specimens. He would assist with aerial wildlife counts and communicated between visitors and rangers about floatplane pickups. So he was, yeah, it's like a... He was like his own volunteer ranger. Which is pretty cool because you know how passionate and how much he loved Twin Lakes and the park. And then all of a sudden now he is actually helping to preserve it. So in summary, what was amazing about Dick? Let's discuss that briefly. I think for starters, as we mentioned before, was his age that he set off on this grand adventure and a very difficult and dangerous thing to do at the age of 51 and did it for 30 years when most people are sort of retiring and and settling down into a rocking chair. Yeah. And what I think is inspiring is he, like I said, he had these bouts of bad health that kind of inspired him to challenge himself. It was almost like a Teddy Roosevelt story where Teddy Roosevelt was a sickly child and he vowed to, to make his body strong. And that's, it's kind of the same thing that, that Dick did. And also like his ingenuity to make the hinges of the doors and build all the furniture. And, and he built this amazing cabin all with hand tools by himself. So that was cool. People who had worked with him earlier in Alaska on his other job said said he was a genius, that he could build anything, he could fix anything, and they were always amazed by that. I think another thing, too, is a lot of people, and possibly us included, you know, spend their lives accumulating things, right? And um, he spent his life the opposite way, sort of shunning sort of shunning material possessions. And he was collecting experiences. He said right. something uh, towards the end of his his first book. He said he didn't want to read about other people experiencing things. He wanted to uh, experience them himself. And so he never really worried about not being able to see television or news stories or newspapers. Uh, I, he would get newspapers from time to time, but he was he was more interested in what was happening to him than what was happening to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I reread his diary recently, and one of the things that really struck me, especially with in contrast to the way we are today, there was a scene where he's describing he and Babe talking, and Babe was a very religious person. And Dick was not. It wasn't that he was an atheist. He just wasn't particularly religious. And they get into this religious discussion where Babe says to Dick, you should really be thinking about the afterlife and and what happens to you, you know, once you're gone. And Dick says something to the effect of, I don't know, I, you know, I'm just going to worry about one life at a time. And Babe shakes his head and says, you really need, I'm, I'm concerned about your philosophy. The point I'm making is Babe was this very religious person. Dick was not. And instead of fighting about it and polarizing and, and not seeing each other and talking to each other, they were still best of friends. Mm-hmm. And so that's so different than today where we find somebody who has a different opinion and we have it creates distance from us. There, it didn't matter. They clearly loved each other and had completely different views about things like religion. It's such a great message, especially today. It's clear after you read his diaries and you watch his film that his wilderness ethic was simple. And that was Twin Lakes and the wildlife therein should not suffer for his presence there. So one thing I really wanted to see when we went inside the cabin was a sign that Dick had made when he lived there. And I saw a photo of it beforehand, and it was handwritten, and I just didn't know if it would still be hanging on his wall. But it was, and the sign that he wrote said, 
Is it proper that the wilderness and its creatures should suffer because we came? (laughs) You know, and just seeing that sign was like one of those pinch me moments that, sorry. (laughs) It was still, it was still in his cabin. It was still in his cabin. It was on the wall. Hanging on his wall in his handwriting. And uh, it just, uh, it kind of summed up the whole experience right there about Getting to know who Dick was and what he stood for, seeing his cabin standing on standing on the shore of Twin Lakes. And it was just one of those moments when your heart feels like it could just bust right out of your chest. So. Yeah, and that's probably why it was one of our best experiences. Yes. It was not not only was it just a stunning wilderness area, but the also the human aspect of this guy who did such an incredible thing with his life, living there. Absolutely. Okay, Karen, what's in the mailbag today? Today's mailbag question comes from Susan in New Hampshire, and she sent us an email, and she wrote... Once my husband and I hit semi-retirement, we hope to take three to four weeks at a time to explore all the beauty of the West. My question is, are there cities or towns you would recommend for a home base? My hope is to rent a house in places that allow for lots of exploration. Well, I did have a little bit of time to think about this because you told me this question before. so Like five minutes uh, ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes the questions are just surprised. And by the way, where is this bag? Where do you keep the bag? <laughs> it's a secret. Yeah. The, so the first answer that just popped into my brain when I heard the question was Moab, Utah. Yes. And uh, so we'll get we'll give a few suggestions, but Moab is pretty centrally located. It is a nanosecond away from Arches National Park. Oh, yeah. In fact, you could go to Arches first thing in the morning when you wake up. Maybe you wake up at sunrise. We don't. But if you do, you could go catch sunrise or sunset. It's a great location. Yeah, and there's a a lot of great public lands in and around Moab. There's then the northern area of Canyonlands National Park, which is – I don't know what, maybe a half an hour away. And then there's Dead Horse Point State Park that's mm-hmm. close to that. Mm-hmm. You can go down south, another hour plus drive to the Needles District of Canyonlands. And then there's Valley of the Gods. There's Monument mm-hmm. Valley. There's there's a lot of things south of there. You can also go west from Moab to you can go over to the Hanksville area and Can- uh, Capitol Reef. and Oh, yeah. And then you could also go east into Colorado because it's not that far from Mesa Verde and from Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Right. So you can explore Colorado as well. I think the location is fantastic. But what's even more important is the cute factor. Um, it's got some really great uh, little restaurants and shops. And we just love Moab. We love to stay there. Yeah, I would suggest that before renting the house, just get on Google Maps and do a little search from Moab how far all these places are. And so then you you have a sense of whether or not you would like to drive that far to these places. The other great thing about Moab is that there are lots of outfitters who offer all kinds of adventures. So if you want to go canyoneering, if you want to go river rafting, if you want to go zip lining, there are all kinds of adventures to be had in Moab besides taking off on your own. Now, I will say the one downside of Moab, and actually this would apply to all of Utah, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but the beer is not very good. Well. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Utah. (laughs) We should qualify that. The the beer's not bad. So Moab Brewery's there, and their Mm -hmm. beer's good. It's it's odd laws because if you – Get a draft beer that's limited as to the alcohol volume, and that's mm-hmm. not that we're wanting to have high alcohol beer, but it, it does taste different because of the limitation. However, if you buy 
their same beer in a bottle, they can give you the full strength version for some reason. So if you if you do station yourself in Moab or Utah, bring a cooler of your favorite beer because you have to buy alcohol in Utah at their state-run liquor stores. You cannot buy them at grocery stores like you can in other states. So just a heads up on that. But otherwise, it's pretty perfect, I think. It's a great location. And that tells you, that gives you a little insight into how Karen plans our trips. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we always rent houses right next to the liquor store. Okay, now it makes sense. But there's there are some other places. You know what one that, that people might be surprised that we suggest is Summerlin, Nevada, mm-hmm. which is a suburb of Las Vegas on the west side of uh, the metro area. Now, actually, it's not very far from the Strip, but it's a, it's a nice little suburb area. But from Summerlin, you could drive to Death Valley. Red Rock Canyon, Mojave National Preserve. You could even get down to Joshua Tree. So, and yeah, then, did you say the Grand Canyon? Did you say that? Well, you could, yeah, yeah. then you go to the Grand Canyon, mm-hmm. to Zion, Lake Mead area. So that's, that's a nice area also. It is, and it's surprising because – Uh, A lot of people have negative opinions about Las Vegas as far as a place to vacation, Uh, and I get that. But the Summerlin suburb is right on the edge of town, and it's overlooking Red Rocks, Mm -hmm. which is a beautiful conservation area, and it's absolutely beautiful out there. So we actually thought that that might be a good home base sometime for us as well because pretty much in every direction you've got some great public lands to explore. Yeah. You know, another town that's a good home base would be Rapid City, South Dakota, or even the Custer State Park area, because there's so many places around there. Mm -hmm. You got Badlands National Park, you got Custer State Park, you got Wind Cave National Park. You could go over to Devil's Tower. Oh, the Black Hills are beautiful. You could easily fill up three weeks. In, in South Dakota. And this yeah. is the... and you can go north to uh, Teddy Roosevelt, mm-hmm. a co- couple of units up there. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. Plus Thank it's... you, Karen. <laughs> Plus, there are a lot of places in that area that rent cabins. There is a lot in the rental pool in South Dakota because they cater to tourists there. So I think there's a lot of really cute cabins available and things like that. So I hope that helps, Susan, and happy exploring to you and your husband. Do you have a question for our mailbag? If so, you can send us an email to mattandkarensmith at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Go to facebook.com slash dearbobands, or you can find us on Instagram at mattandkarensmith. To see pictures from our trip to Dick's Cabin, go to www.thedearbobandsuepodcast.com and click on the title for episode 21. There you'll find show notes for this episode and links to other information. Thanks to all of you who've left us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, getting us closer to my dream of 500. (laughs) We're now less than 50 away. So close. That's such an odd dream. (laughs) (laughs) And you might not know it, but anyone can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, even if you listen to our show on Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. So in your dreams, (laughs) you're the (laughs) co-host. Of a travel podcast. And in your dream. Because you can dream anything. <laughs> your dream is to have 500 ratings on your yes. amateur. That's travel my, yes, that is my dream. Okay. Are you mocking my dream? <laughs> now remember, you can dream anything. <laughs> I think it's a fine dream. Oh, good. (laughs) The books that this podcast is based on are available on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue. And you can also find more information about us by heading over to www.dearbobandsue.com. Our show is produced by our amazing team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. Next time you hear from us, maybe we'll be starting plans for our own remote cabin in the woods. Yeah, I don't know about that. Maybe you can build a cabin. I'll still be working on the table. (laughs) (laughs) 